So Rabbi Belovsky walks into the building, and he right away realizes it's been a long time since he's here. We made it up about 10 years. So therefore, I have to clap al Kate. It's my fault that uh, I haven't worked hard enough to get Rabbi Belovsky back. Um, my relationship with Rabbi Belovsky goes way back to the uh, days of Kirov conferences where we met in America. And um, there was a stint. I didn't realize that it stopped 15 years ago because it seems like it was yesterday. But every th- I used to time my recruiting trips to England to make sure that I'm always there on a Thursday because he, Rabbi Gablowski, used to give a lunch and learn at Oxford University every Thursday. And so when I was there annually, he made sure to take me. I remember driving up in his car uh, to Oxford so that I could get And he let me give the lunch and learn, the partial lunch and learn in Oxford. He says it stopped 15 years ago, so that's probably why I stopped going to England. Um, again, Rabbi, you read the Rabbi Volovsky's, um bio. I just the one thing that they didn't put on there is that he ha- he has graduated from Oxford. He's an Oxford graduate as well. He has a doctorate, and he learned seven years in, in Gateshead. I'm not sure there are that many Gateshead graduates that can claim Oxford degrees and a sep- and a and a whole seven year cycle at Gateshead. Anyway, so he's the head of chaplaincy. He has a shul. Uh, he has had a shul. I think he's now uh, looking for a, uh, uh, a new, a next, ra- a new, a new rabbi. Anybody wants to apply for the job, he's good. he's interviewing. Um, but um, really, a, a, a very big koach in the uh, Anglo-Jewish scene, uh, scene. And we're very honored to uh, that he was able that I was able to get him back after ten years. Rabbi Belovsky, please. Rabbi Kalinsky, thank you for your uh, warm welcome. It it really is 15 years, I think, since we did that trip. You might remember, I have a particular memory, maybe the last trip, that a car caught fire on the motorway and there kind of standstill traffic for an hour. And there was this lengthy conversation about whether we should go to the Hasidic Shtibel, where they dove Mencher about 20 minutes after Shkia, um, because that was the only option remaining. You, remember, you might remember this. Anyway, we went, I dove Mencher, and he didn't. <laughs> this is what happened. Right. Right. So, uh, anyway, thank you for welcoming me back. The reason I didn't come back is you've forgotten. It wasn't very successful last time I came. The student didn't like what I said. No, that, that's why I didn't invite you back. So I'm going to see if I, I see I can uh, create as long a gap this time as well. Now, it's just a couple of days until the beginning of Hanukkah. And I thought I'd share a few thoughts about Hanukkah, which is very often oversimplified. We live in an era where Hanukkah, um, certainly in the public space, and certainly in Chutzlah Oritz, less so, of course, in Israel, um, has become a sort of winter festival of lights going on at the same time often as other religions are having this year particularly. Other religions are having their lights. Um, my late Rebbe, Diane Gershon Lopins of said um, that there were no Christmas lights in Golders Green until Chabad put up their menorah. I'm not sure this is entirely true. Um, but it's very easy to kind of allow these things to kind of to affect the way we perceive a profound concept. And in order to properly understand this, we need to kind of di- divest ourselves of any preconceptions and go back to the sources. 
When it comes to Chanukah, you'll be aware that there's an entire Masechta devoted to Purim. But Chanukah is an afterthought. You can open the second parak of the Mishnahis and Shabbos, which talks about which fuels and wicks are permitted for Shabbos lights. And as a digression from that, we end up in the Gomorrah talking about Chanukah, about what kind of lights are Chanukah, because the rules are different, because they have different purposes. So there's a contrast. Chanukah appears only once or twice in other places, and even though it lasts for eight days, and it's a big deal, and today in the Jewish public consciousness, it is more significant than Purim, it occupies much less attention um, in the classic rabbinic literature. What occupies even less attention is the aspect dealing with the miracle of the oil and the lamps of Hanukkah. It appears only once, this discussion, although in the Apocrypha, in the book of Maccabees, which is not part of our traditional canon, um, there, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wider discussion of the war. The Sugya, which you know, I'm sure, it's on Daf Kaf Aleph on base um, in Shabbos, requires very careful study. It's short, but there's a great deal in it. And without understanding the way it's structured, we can't really properly understand its opening line. My Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? Now, there is a narrow question which the Gomorrah is going to answer. But there's a broader question that we are going to try and deal with in the three hours that Rabbi Kalinsky has given me um, today. We're going to try to deal with this question. My Hanukkah, what is Hanukkah? What are we trying to do? What is the spiritual purpose of Hanukkah? Why did Chazal go to so much effort to create something that would outlast, unlike so many other occasions, the few years in which the miracle happened? And in order to demonstrate this contrast, um, the Gomorrah draws on a text called Megillus Tanis. So Megillus Tanis is a record of days which were set aside as fast days or feast days based on certain events at stages of Jewish history, most of which, other than Hanukkah and Purim, are long forgotten and irrelevant. There are long sugyas discussing this, and they're days that really have very little meaning today to us. My Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? The Toner um, the rabbis taught, Bekav hei bekislev yom de Hanukkah tamyin inun. From the 25th of Kislev, the days of Hanukkah are eight. What is their purpose? This is the definition. Which is the framing you'd get from Megillus Tanis. It's in the list of days when you're not allowed to fast or deliver eulogies. That's the, that's, it's, it's in the list of, of days and it's drawn from there. There was a long list, now there's a very short list. And why did they set it out for this purpose? When the Greeks entered the sanctuary, they, all of the oils had been defiled, that were in the sanctuary. And when the sovereigns of the house of the Hasmoneans prevailed, the and they vanquished the Greeks, and drove them out of the Beis HaMikdosh. You know the story. They investigated, and they found only one jar of oil still intact, 
with the seal of the Kohen Godl, i.e. validating it for use for the menorah. But it only contains sufficient to burn for one day. This stuff you know. Nasaboynes, a miracle occurred with it. Vidliku mimenu shmonu yomim. And they lit from it for eight days. Exactly what does it mean? It burned. There's a long discussion. Something known as the Kasha of the base Yosef, which I'm sure you've come across. Why are there eight days of Hanukkah if there's enough oil for one? It's only seven days of miracle. There's a lengthy conversation. There are entire books written. It was a pastime amongst some Hasidic Rebbers to come up with a new explanation for this every year. There are whole collections of these books. They start off interesting and they become less and less and less credible and as you go through. But as you imagine, after a few glasses of vodka, then the, um, the kind of ideas became more outlandish. But in the meantime, because of the eight days for which this lit, the Cheres, another year, let's assume the following year, the rabbis saw there was something remarkable about this. The rabbis fixed them and made them as festive days. Not going to say bad locker. Bahalel v'hoidol. The primary observance of Hanukkah is Halel. The full Halel is said all eight days. It's in the list. And Hoidol means that we have this passage, Allah Nisim, thanking Hashem for the miracles, which is said on Hanukkah in one version, in Purim in another version, and it's said in the penultimate bracha in Moedim, and it's also inserted in the Birkas Amosim. And that's it. And the bit before and the couple of pages afterwards are details about the lighting, how to do it, where to do it, who should do it, the usual kind of thing that Halacha is interested in. The sukkah is structured in a very interesting way. What is the purpose of, the, of, the, of Hanukkah? It's a day when there is no fasting and no eulogies because it is the beginning of a period, it celebrates the beginning of an eight-day period in which there was a war, the, the, the Hasmoneans prevailed over the Greeks. And then the reason it's eight days is because there were eight days of this miracle, presumably, and there's lots of discussion that to go and get more oil, why it's eight days. None of that is really our concern. And the, 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 the Hadlocket is significant. It's in the story. There is no other record of this. And, of course, that leads all sorts of people with a nefarious intent to question the historicity of this. We're not interested in that. For our purposes, Chazal is telling us history. This is something which happened. It's significant. But it's still not the core focus of the day. It doesn't say the rabbis established it. The Hadloka. Hadlokas Neiris. It says they'd established it. The primary function of Hanukkah is celebrating. Thanking Hashem. Celebrating with Hashem. And thanking Hashem for these events. Possibly for the oil, but primarily for the war. And if you read this text, Halel is, as you know, drawn from Tehillim. And it's a multi-purpose text. It's used on many occasions. But the text for Hanukkah of Hodor, the, the, the second bit of the Allah Nisim, which is unique to Hanukkah, is only for Hanukkah. And what's it about? What's the primary subject of this? It's the war. That they were, they were, the Jews were attacked. They defiled the base of Mikdosh. And there was a great miracle in which a small number of people vanquished the great. The weak prevailed over the strong and so on. And you know the story. And eventually, Acha came. 
After this, they came into the base Amikdosh. They cleaned it out. They got everything ready again. And the, only the most oblique reference, if at all, to the lighting. The Adliku Neiros Bechatzris Kotshecho. Is that the menorah? They li- maybe it is. Maybe it's a way of saying that we cleaned up the place. This focus, the locus of world spirituality. And we put the lights on again. We're open for business. But if you read it literally, the menorah wasn't in the chotzeh, in the courtyard. So what does it really mean? Don't know whether that's the menorah or not. It may well not be. It's clearly not focal to the, to the hodor either. The hodor is talking about victory in the war. So this is what I wanted to propose. And this is kind of like the first take-home. We need to consider what the role of the hadloka, the lighting of the menorah, the miracle of the oil is. What is, it, what is its role in this story? Is it essential? Is it a sideline? Is it an, you know, a happy coincidence? What would have happened had this war taken place? Eventually, the small number of Jewish guerrillas drove the Yavonim, the Greeks, out of the Beis Amikdosh, and there was no oil. What would Hanukkah have looked like? There was no oil. Would there have been a celebratory day? Would there have been a week? We don't know. We don't know. And by the way... I used to think this was heresy until I found it in the Orch HaShulchan, um, so which means I'm allowed to say it, um, which is, which, which is that the, the, the question why Hanukkah is eight days rather than seven is properly answered with reference to, his, to historical um, record in the book of Maccabees, which is that if you look at the timing, this war was going on during Sukkot. Sukkot is not very long before Hanukkah. They were not able to observe Sukkot because it was during the war. And it, I heard it suggested that the reason it's eight days is because historically it was a replacement for the Sukkot they could never observe because they were out fighting. And I discovered that the Orach HaShulchan says just the same thing in his analysis of Hanukkah, that this actually is the origin. And it was known. It was a known I've never anyone ever seen this, maybe in Yerushalayim. There were people who used to walk around with their lulav on Hanukkah. Anyone heard of this practice? Well, and the reason seems to be because they'd internalised this idea that it was really had a, a connection to Sukkot. By the way, and in a halachic share, there are lots and lots of places in the Gomorrah where we correlate halachas from Sukkot to Hanukkah. Just, just for your interest about height and dimensions and all sorts of things, and there may be some underlying connection which uh, has a certain historical dimension that is long forgotten. I want to focus on the following question. We are accustomed to seeing, to thinking of the menorah, the miracle of the oil, which we celebrate with this eight-branch menorah, which we light in the way that's familiar, and we turn into a public display. I saw as I was arriving, a menorah being kind of in a box getting ready, one of the great privileges of being in Eretz Yisrael, that it's possible to light a menorah in the optimum way, outside in the right place. What is the role of the menorah in this Hanukkah story? We are accustomed to seeing it as a sibar, as a cause. This event happens, and this causes, it is the trigger for the observance that we today call Hanukkah, that Chazal instituted L'Shon Acheres in the subsequent year that is mentioned in the Sukya. I want to suggest there is another way to look at it. I would imagine, as Tamdi Chachomim, or Badzing Tamdi Chachomim, you are familiar with a Distinction in Lomdus between Siba and Simon. Is it a Siba? That's the normal way. The, uh, it triggers. It, it's the cause. Or is it maybe instead a Simon? Somehow or other, what happens with the menorah 
is not the miracle. It's not the miracle. The miracle is the wall. The Hanukkah celebrates the wall. But the menorah is a simon, somehow represents in a profound, sophisticated and complex way what this war was really about. It is essential to understand this, and in order to do so, we need to explore some other sources. The first reference in rabbinic literature to Greece and its significance across the great sweep of Jewish history appears as early as the second posseg of the Torah. The second posseg of the Torah is V'ho'oretz ho'isosoyu v'avoyu The earth was void and chaos. V'choshech al-penei sohoyim And there was darkness upon the face of the deep. V'ruach elokim rachefes al-penei amoyim The Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the waters. Now, each phrase of this needs deconstruction to understand properly. But Chazal are always digging they see in this not just a record of what may, the world may have looked like before it existed, as it were. But the Torah is not a history book. It's interesting conveying concepts that are eternal, that replay throughout history, that we need to tap into, to touch, to understand the way the Rabboni Shalom set up the world and how we are supposed to interact with it. So, on the word Choshech, the Choshech, Midrash Rabbo says, Zer Golos Yovan, Darkness will play out in history, primarily in the Golos Yovan, the Greek exile. Why? What's the, what's the, exile, the Greek exile is unusual. The Babylonians, they drove the Jews out of the land. The Romans. The Greek exile is an exile in the land. It's a conceptual, theological exile. It's, it is an exile from Jewish tradition, life, priorities, and for the first time, Jewish history encountered Jews who not only were amenable to the message of their oppressors, but even became its greater, greatest promoters. These are people we call misyavnim, self-Hellenizers, to capture the reflexive of the word misyavnim. They're not just Hellenizers, they're self-Hellenizers. These are people who are themselves internalising and promoting... There are no Miss Bublin, as far as I know. I've never heard of anyone say, I want to be a Babylonian. Right? But there are people who are very enamoured of what Greece had to offer as an alternative to Judaism. So this is the darkness that Chazal are referring to here. Why? Because they darkened the eyes of Yisrael. With their decrees. Remember this is a Midrash. They don't literally say this. They say this conceptually. This is the message that is being conveyed. From the purveyors of Greek culture. And their Jewish. As it were collaborators. To the Jewish world. Right on the horn of an ox. That you have no portion. In the God of Israel. It's very strange. Right on the horn of an ox. I mean. Why would you write anything on the horn of an ox? Well I make it. I'd like a suggestion. If interacting with an ox. Don't try and write anything on it. It may not appreciate it. So the likelihood is. That this horn is detached from the ox. And there are many many interpretations of this. My favourite interpretation. Is one I heard in the name of the gates of Rosh Hashiva. 
And that this is an image, in the modern idiom you would say, imbibe with your mother's milk. Horns were used as baby bottles. They didn't have plastic bottles. If you had to feed a baby a liquid, you'd make her take the horn and cut a hole in the end, and you'd use it as a baby bottle. What Chazal is saying, imbibe with your mother's milk from the very earliest years. You have to understand you have no portion with the God of Israel. Note it does not say there is no God. That's a different ideology. There is a complete separation, as it were, I won't say between church and state. There's a complete separation between the spiritual world and physical world. Maybe there's a spiritual world, it's nothing to do with us. We get on with our lives here. The notion that the physical and spiritual could combine, that there could be some kind of complex reality in which some kind of concept from above could be recognised or realised or actualised in a lower world, this is rejected. Right on the horn of an ox, imbibe with your mother's milk. It shall be your aleph base, as it were, that you've got no portion with the God of Israel. But the oddity is that in other areas of classic rabbinic literature, the rabbis are rather more complementary um, about Greece. This is a passage, albeit from the Zohar, so it's of a different genre, trying to um, do different things. They pick up another reference, it doesn't matter which, it's in Pasha's Chukas, which they read also as associated with Greece. Yovan, de inun kreven lo orche mehemenuso. Greece is particularly insidious because it's close, it's very, very close to the way of truth. There is something very, very close, i.e. it's very attractive. It seems, as it were, to be ideologically similar, and finding the distinction is critical. They are totally different. One is our enemy, if you like, the enemy of the continuity of Judaism. But Zohar is saying there are similarities, there's something similar, and in fact, although I haven't... um, Included on my on my reference sheet here, you may know that there's a that even the halacha when it comes to sufferus has some strange interest in Greek. Now it doesn't necessarily mean that the Greek it's talking about are the Greek alphabets that we have today or the Greek ideas, but there's a a prep. you can't write sifrei kodesh in Hebrew, so there are some things you can write in Greek. We can't do that. We don't know what it means, but there's an affinity or association. The idea that you can convey our most sacred texts and ideas in the language of these people as a preference to any other language should, for some reason, you not be able to write it in Hebrew. There's something very odd about that. The rabbis are telling us something, and we need to tune into it. So, but this idea that somehow or other there will be a divorce, a divorce between the spiritual world and the physical world, a divorce between the world of God and the world of um, and the world um, of the spiritual, uh, uh, the world of the physical, plays out in a resistance or an unwillingness to allow core mitzvah observance. There are various sources in Megillus Tanis, the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah. They talk about attacking Shabbos observance, Brismila. Kiddush HaChodesh, that's a strange one. Shabbos and Mila are very obviously core observances that are central to the, to the continuity and rhythm of Jewish life. 
Kiddush the common theme with these things, are the sense that human beings can connect to a higher dimension. Brismila says you can sanctify even the strongest drives, and they can be used for spiritual purposes with a spiritual channel. We don't separate from them. We don't, we're not hermits, celibates living on mountaintops. Nor are we hedonists. We can live in a space where those urges are channeled for spiritual purposes. Shabbos is about two worlds colliding. And Kiddush HaChodesh is about human beings' ability to sanctify and control the spiritual rhythm of the world. So there is a common theme between these ideas. And the Greeks were insistent that we didn't mention Shem Shemayim, that God is excluded from the picture to the extent that the Rosh Hashanah says that the Greeks forbade the Jews to even write God's name or any divine reference, even on mundane documents, on commercial documents. That's all the background. Let's turn in a slightly different direction. What's the earliest, let's say, more explicit reference to Greek or its Greece or its antecedents in the Torah? That possibly the second one, does not talk about Greece at all. The rabbis read it in. Where's the most more explicit reference? Ah, very good. Very, very good. So, in the ninth parak of Boratius, we see the aftermath of the marvel. And you know that Noah plants a vineyard and it all goes very wrong. And after that's all finished, Noah makes a declaration. I'm describing it as a declaration rather than a bracha because for our purposes it's defining or describing the reality of each of his three children who will form, if you like, the three major branches of humanity of which there will be exemplars. The exemplar of shame will be Avram Ovinu and his family. And the exemplar of Yefet will be the Greeks and their culture, their philosophy, their world. What's the declaration? Yaft Elohim Yafes. Now, Rashi understands that this word Yaft means to broaden. But it obviously comes as well from, a, from, it come from the word of the meaning beauty. I would translate it differently. God will ascribe beauty, that world of aesthetic appreciation of music and culture. This is what God is giving to the descendants of Yafes in this brocha. Through Noah. The Yishka, and I'll translate it in the normal way, but in contrast, the Vov, let's make it translate as but, as but, it's a contrasting Vov. The Yishkon Baalei Shein. But God, He, will dwell in the tents of shame. The He, Hanan Eved Lomoi, Hanan gets a bit of a bad deal. He's the bad guy. He's not the subject of that conversation. So we see what appears to be a division. We have the beauty, the aesthetic, the world which will become the achievements of Greece. They're separated from spirituality. And then we have the Yishkon Baalei Shem. God's going to live in the tents of shame. That's going to be the family of Avram. That's going to be our contribution to the world. That is one way of reading it. And it's also a way which is perpetuated in some parts of the community. And it's a valid way to read it. There's another way to read it. It's a Gemara Megillah. Dav Tes Om Beis. Already, they only gave permission to write Sforum when necessary in Greek. Rabbi Yochan says, well, what's the reason? Why, why pick out Greece? Why not make it, 
you know, Sanskrit or Mandarin. What difference does it make? Here's the key phrase. Omicron. Because the Possek says, Yaft Elohim Liefes, Vyishkon Bole Shem. I just read it. Possek Tess, Perik Tess, Possek Kaf Zion. 9.27 in Voracious. Because of this Possek, which brings them together. How are they brought together? Devorav shall yefes, yeyua shame. Notice, the Rabban Shimben Gamliel is rereading the verse. The words of yefes shall be in the tense of shame. What he's actually done is retranslated the pronoun in the word v'yishkon. I translated yafte lekim yefes, God will give, ascribe beauty to yefes or broaden yefes. V'yishkon, but he, God, Will Yishkon Baal Rabbi Shimbin Gamliel is saying the beauty of Yefes is the subject, is the pronoun the Yishkon. Yefes, the beauty will be ascribed to Yefes, but it should dwell. It should dwell in the tents of shame. That is how Rabbi Shimbin Gamliel is reading this. And that creates an alternative understanding, an alternative way of thinking about these issues. How does that go? Well, the subtle difference between these two, what appear to be what are known in the kind of academic world of Athens and Jerusalem, the two polarities which seem to simultaneously be antithetical, yet the Zoya says, what's the phrase? Inan Kravim. So somehow they're close. How can they both be antithetical and so close? Because the antithesis is found in their proximity. Because the difference between the two ideologies is whether the culture, the ideas, the tremendous strides in human development which represent which the, the, world, the culture, the world of Greece, the Western world, whatever you want to, how you want to see it, those things have become, and are for many people, an end in themselves. They are separate from any kind of spiritual endeavour. That is antithetical to the way the Torah wants us to think about the world. They become an end rather than a means. But there's another way of thinking about it. That there's nothing wrong with these. They have to be very carefully filtered. They have to be used very carefully. But they are part of the great panoply of ideas. But they have to be fitted into a framework. They serve the Torah. They can fit in our world, provided they fit firmly, firmly in oyale shame. They are a means, not an end. And I think this is a way of reading this entire sugya. That you have... Two ideologies that are as far apart as possible because one means everything is dedicated to the pursuit of spirituality, personal growth, improvement of the world. And the other is essentially self-focused. One is about bringing God into everything. The other is doing everything without God. And yet they are close. They seem similar. And you need quite to think very carefully about how to distinguish them. And it's understandable that some would reject these sort of constructs. They're too dangerous. But Rabbi Shimon Gamliel gives us, as it were, a space in which we can implant one firmly in the other, turning one into a means, but not an end. And it seems to me that this is a credible understanding of the purpose of Hanukkah. The war that is being described, an, an ideological war, is more sophisticated than just 
They tried to kill us. They lost. Let's eat donuts. Right? It's a little more complicated than this. There is a very sophisticated, complex set of ideas going on. Two ideas which on the surface appear to be only hair's breadth apart, as Isaiah says. Yet, who wins this battle will determine the future of Jewish life, the future of spiritual life. In fact, the future of whether there can be spirituality in this world. Are human achievements in the world of aesthetic and philosophy and all those other areas, are they a kosher? That's a question in itself. But if they are kosher, they're only kosher as means to spiritual ends in the tent of shame rather than on their own. Now think about the menorah. While you're thinking about the menorah, let's plug this a little back, back, back into the Gomorrah. Ultimately, the purpose of Hanukkah is to thank Hashem for the, victory in the, for the victory in a war which was unexpected. A tiny number of people who still held, held fast to the right way of thinking, to a territorial ideology... They were successful with God's help, and they won. And that demands a rethink about how important about this divine, what this Hanukkah about. Hanukkah is, transcends all of the other, with the exception of Purim, things that appear in Megillus Tarnis, because they're forgotten. They were situationally significant, and as the centuries passed, they faded. But this is existential for Jewish life, which is why the Shona Acheres Kovum V'Osum, the rabbis fixed it, but their primary purpose will always be Halel. And Hoidol. These are ways of bringing God into the world to recognize, thanking God, praising God. Halel is about going back right to, to early history, about God's interest in the world. That's the first paragraph. Second, how that plays out in Egypt, and then how it plays out in other aspects of Jewish life and experience, present and future, as you see at the Seder. Hoidol is about recognizing God's intervention very specifically and involvement about how God helps with this and what and that enables us to have the concept of a temple, a place where the physical and spiritual worlds, the nexus can meet, the nexus of heaven and earth. That's the thing, the Pshat and the Sugi. Where do the menorah fit in? Think about the rules governing a menorah. So the original temple menorah has to be mikshot, has to be from a single piece of metal. If you take a piece of metal and you solder other parts on, this is invalid. It has to have a single branch with six lateral branches. There is a requirement derived from the beginning of Pashas Baloscha, which requires the wicks <coughs> to be inclined towards the centre. El Mul They have to incline towards the centre. This is saying something all the time. It might interest you that in the German communities, and this is very prevalent in this, of the school system in London, the use of the menorah as a symbol for a certain type of schooling, a certain type of way of thinking. That there are several schools in the area I live in, in Golders Green and Hendon, called, called menorah. There's a, there's a Hasmonean, Hashmonean school, it's all the same kind of thing. There's, there's a, from a certain, those from, from a German background, where they very much were into the combination of bringing these two together. Whether it's exactly Torah and Derek is another conversation. And I recommend strongly um, Rabbi Hirsch's essays on Hellenism and Judaism, which, which really cover these ideas in great detail, inspirational detail. The only thing I will say about them, they're very, very long. And it reflects the fact that so these days, if I speak for more than 10 or 12 minutes in my shul, I can see the heads of uh, the roll of people, and can they smell the cholent and love going, and that's what happens. Uh, Rabbi Hirsch, it was quite normal to be for two hours on the shul this morning. That's not a short day. On the, you know, the, so you see, there's a bit, of, a bit of a different world. Fortunately, I don't think he did it very often. But his writings on this are magnificent, and they capture these ideas much better than I have. 
What's the story of the menorah? What is it supposed to do? You can see that it represents, as it were, six lights facing a central light. It's a structure that, according to sources, going back as far as Rabbeinu Bachya in the medieval period, from the school of the Rambam, and certainly in the writings of Rav Hirsch, whom I've mentioned, and also even in the Emic Dover, the Natsiv, who's just writing a little later than Rav Hirsch, they see, and here's a bit of a sample, that the uh, Rabbeinu Bachya, that uh, there are seven, um, there are seven lamps. The, t- the menorah represents the, t- the light of the Torah. Kiner mitzvah v'soira oir. And he koileles sheva chachmos. Shel chachmos. This includes seven branches of wisdom. But they're not separate. They're not living on their own. They're not distinct. They're not ends in themselves. They are all part of a single system which serves the light of Torah which stands in the middle. And he elaborates a little bit on that. Peace in the Emic Dovor, um, on the, on the uh, it's actually in, uh, I think possibly towards the maybe in Parshas Vayakel. Shisha Keneha Menorah Imakona Em The six lateral branch, branches of the Menorah with the central branch. They represent the seven branches of wisdom, external wisdom, that are support, subordinate to the Torah. And the Torah somehow feeds them, as it were. They come, they emerge. And of course, what he's doing here is playing on the fact that there's a central, central branch. And these lateral branches emerge. The branches of the Mermonara emerge from the Torah. They, they emerge and they face back towards it. It's an extraordinary symbol, if you think about it. If you understand what it's about. It's about... It represents the sum total of human wisdom, how it should be structured with a Torah system. So here's what I said, going back to the beginning, I'm going to stop, is that the menorah is a simon for what Hanukkah represents. It's important. It's very important. We can even argue that that's why this happened with the menorah at the time, because there needed to be some peg to, to enable people to subsequently understand the purpose of the war. We can debate that. But the purpose it has for us, in a world where the menorah has become Hanukkah, where the objective is to light the right number of lights, where if you ask most people what Hanukkah is about, there's a miracle of oil, so we celebrate it by doing this. We can step back. It needs to be done properly and thoughtfully and carefully. And the Sugi describes a historic event. But its purpose is to stand as a simon to what the war was about. Look at them. There's a lot of focus on Hanukkah. You know, it's the only mitzvah you can't... If you watch someone shaking a lulav, you don't make a bracha. But in principle, if you, are, if you see a menorah, which is in a house, correctly positioned, and you're not going to have an opportunity to perform the mitzvah, looking at it, you can make a brocha. You're not, you're only, you're, the, the purpose is to look at it. To look at it. That's how it differs from other sorts of lamps. The purpose is to look at it. Not just to look at it, but to contemplate, to think what it represents. And if you understand the symbol as a simon for what happened at Hanukkah, we're a long way, I think, to understanding the Torah's conceptualization of different forms of wisdom. Why it is that Greeks were simultaneously close, if you like, to the source of truth, but very, very far from it. Have a wonderful day.